Hi, and welcome to Tall Tales Uncovered. This is Joe Cummings, and I am so appreciate you taking the time to listen in. All the new folk and new history buffs, please share this podcast and please do a rating review on Apple or whatever platform you're using. We must keep history alive. I love your comments and questions as they take tall tales to new legends. The weather is so nice. It is enjoyable to be all sitting outside underneath this big old cottonwood tree. Tea and water, uh, they're over there on that table. Just help yourself. It's so nice to have a light breeze for a change instead of all that wind. Sam, you just ask a great question. Who was responsible for the cleaning up of the Oklahoma Territory of the Dalton and Doolin gangs and all the outlaws? The U.S. Attorney of 1888 estimated that of 20,000 white people in Oklahoma Territory, 15,000 would be criminals. Was it the famous U.S. Deputy Marshals like Bill Tillman, Chris Madsen, or Heck Thomas? This is a tall tale indeed. How about a grocer, a grocer in 1890 in Guthrie who had never been a lawman or a gunfighter or had even thought about saints things? His name was Ebbett Dumas Nix, called Ed Nix, who sat down with Gordon Hines and told his tales in a book, Oklahoma Hombres, reliving what he called the days of the saddle and the gun. As you all remember in podcast number eight, Guns Ablaze, Outlaws, and the U.S. Marshals, we explored the rise of the U.S. Marshals and the Outlaws, plus the famous three guardsmen and the legendary U.S. Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves. It might be helpful to the listener to enjoy that podcast, too, to fill in more background for this tall tale. Nix was born September 19, 1861, in Kentucky, and as a young man worked at his father's wagon and buggy factory and operated a grocery hardware and furniture business in Coldwater, Kentucky. It was successful, and in 1880, he sold it at a good profit, moving to Paducah, Kentucky, where he became a traveling sales representative for J.K. Bondurant and Company Wholesale Grocers. In 1885, he married his childhood friend, Ellen Feltz. They moved to Guthrie, Oklahoma Territory in October 1889. Ed Nix bought half interest in a general merchandise store with Mr. Baldwin as his partner. Ed also bought the building outright that they would use. They prospered and were able to be the first to install plate glass store windows, and he built a home for his family also. He became good friends with Oscar Halsell, one of the best known and prosperous cattlemen. In March 1890, Ed bought out his partner Baldwin to be the sole owner. Next, he joined with Halsell to form the Knicks and Halsell Company, a wholesale grocery business. It, too, prospered. What What's that, Jim? Well, you are so right. It's a strange turn of events that Nix became friends with Halsell. Most of the outlaws worked for Halsell when they were young cowpokes and met their future gang members. Bitter Creek Newsom, Bill Doolin, Zip Wyatt, and many others learned the horse riding and shooting there. Nix would soon be meeting them. The Commercial Bank of Guthrie failed, and at just 30 years old, Nix was appointed receiver. He was highly praised for his handling the affair very successfully. The general public put a great deal of confidence in his executive ability. 
M.L. Turner, a very prominent banker, and several businessmen came to Nixon's office one day to propose that they would back him to be the United States Marshal for Oklahoma. They said, Nix, the future of Oklahoma is being seriously jeopardized by numerous outlaw gangs. The country needs a man who understands to conduct in a businesslike manner who is fearless and daring enough to wipe them out. We have decided that you are that man. Nix was surprised and refused totally. Then the group of citizens appealed to Oscar Halsell. He agreed with them and told Nix that he would take over the large share of his duties of the business if Nix would apply for the appointment. Next, the citizens gathered a large group of endorsements and credentials for Nix. He went to Washington for a meeting with President Cleveland and his attorney general with his application. There were 42 very qualified people applying, including U.S. Deputy Marshal Heck Thomas, who most thought would be selected. The president chose Nix, who at age 32 was the youngest ever appointed to such a position. Nix immediately requested to have 150 U.S. Deputy Marshals, which is more than double the number of deputies ever allowed. It was approved with no questions. Nix would commit 50,000 prisoners to jail and 10,000 more giving bond. So there was plenty of work ahead. Nix said most of the 60,000 were gunmen of the wickedest type. It is to the credit of his army of deputy marshals that only five officers were lost. You are so right, Mary. You're right. Heck, Thomas stayed and was loyal to Nix. That is an important point. He became one of the three guardsmen, along with Chris Madsen and Bill Tillman. Again, it would be helpful to listen to podcast number eight to fill in the U.S. Starpity Deputy Marshal events. And podcast one covers a shootout between Blackface Charlie of the Dalton Gang and U.S. Deputy Marshal Ed Short at Wacomus, Oklahoma, just six miles south of Enid. The Dalton Gang was made up of Grat, Emmett, and Bob Dalton, along with Bill Doolin, Dynamite Dick Broadwell, Bill Powers, Oliver Yontes, and Blackface Charlie Bryant. So-called because a gun exploded in a fight, leaving powder burns on his face. The Daltons came from a respected family. Lewis, the father, died, and his widow, Adeline, secured a farm near Kingfisher. The three oldest sons were located nearby and were farmers. The daughters married farmers in Oklahoma and lived normal, happy lives. The Southern Pacific was offering a 6000 reward for the Daltons for the murder of the firemen in a train holdup. They stole 10 horses and killed George Starmer, a member of the posse chasing them. They robbed not only the Santa Fe train at its stop in Red Rock, Oklahoma, but also all the civilians, the passengers, leaving the telegraph operator murdered. They robbed a train at its stop in Adair, taking all the people's valuables and the money on the train, killing a doctor from Adair and wounding several police and passengers. U.S. Deputy Sheriffs Bill Tillman, Heck Thomas, and Chris Matson 
were on their trail. They were all expert trackers, gunmen, and frontiersmen. They never gave up, and all the outlaws knew it. They were later called the Three Guardsmen. Yontis was shot and killed in Orlando by a posse led by Heck Thomas and Chris Madsen. Emmett Dalton stated it was because of those three that they decided to change locations to Coffeyville, Kansas, rob two banks at once, and retire far, far away. Outside Coffeyville, Bill Doolin's horse went lame, and he went to steal another horse at a ranch. The Daltons wore disguises like a false beard or a mustache, which kept falling off, and people saw they were fake. And on top of that, the Daltons had lived there earlier, and all the people knew them. A bank robbery cry went up, and all the citizens came out armed. The Daltons' gang were all killed, and Emmett, severely wounded, was captured. Four citizens were killed. The 31000 taken from the bank were, was all returned except for $20, which was never found. Bill Doolin, coming into Coffeyville, he heard all the gunshots, and he fled. Bill Doolin formed his own gang with Bill Dalton, who had not been with his brothers, Bitter Creek Newcomb, Little Bill, the notorious Red Buck, Charlie Pierce, Arkansas Tom, Tulsa Jack, and Dynamite Dick. They became known as the Wild Bunch, or the Doolin-Dalton Gang. Marshall Nix was busy with the opening of the Cherokee Strip. 5,698 1,140 acres with 35,613 claims and up to half a million lined up on the borders of the Strip. Nix hired 1,000 special aid deputies to manage and patrol the entire border. Nix fired the gun that sounded the shot that set the homesteaders racing off. Nick had arranged for no liquor during the run and settling. What? Oh, yeah, Jim, Jim, uh, yeah, Jim, good reminder. Yeah, there were Sooners, people who crossed into the Cherokee outlet early and hid, then staked the claim like they'd really made the run. Next gave one example of the Sooners who crossed early. He said some did manage to break through the lines and to conceal themselves on choice claims. Several fights grew out of the effort of these Sooners to take advantage of the most honorable contestants. He remembered that one of his deputies reported shortly after the run had taken place that he found one man occupying a claim that he could not possibly have reached in the short time that had elapsed since a signal had been fired for the run. The deputy prowled about the little camp looking for evidence that might prove the man to be a sooner. Look at that horse over yonder, the the suspected man exclaimed, Can't you three see he's been through the mill? The deputy walked over to where the horse stood, covered with lather. He doesn't seem to be panting much, the deputy remarked, as he touched a finger to the horse's neck. The officer then touched the tip of his tongue with his finger. The horse had been lathered with laundry soap. Needless to say, this sooner was led away from the claim he had staked and it was soon occupied by a family that had actually made the run. Meanwhile, the dueling gang robbed a Santa Fe train at Wharton, which 
now called Perry, making off with money from the express train and the valuables of the passengers. They then robbed a bank in southwest city, Missouri, securing 15000 but killing State Auditor Seaborn before robbing the Pawnee Bank of 10000 Then Nix received word that they robbed a bank in Texas of 50000 The Trilby Saloon in Ingalls was a hangout for the Wild Bunch. Nix sent two covered wagons of lawmen with guns and ammunition to capture them on September 1st, 1893. Podcast number eight covers the famous battle at Ingalls between the Wild Bunch and the Marshals, which resulted in the death of three U.S. Deputy Marshals. U.S. Deputy Marshal Burke had been hearing of a number of cattle and horse thefts and some petty stealing that was being done by a pair of girls who seemed to be hanging out near members of the Doolin gang, yet never becoming a part of the gang. After a number of these reports had convinced Burke that the girls were actually outlaws, he set out to find them. Here and there he would discover a theft or case where they had peddled whiskey to members of the Oshade tribe. But for some time he was unable to find a warm trail. The girls were becoming very troublesome, and it was evident they were keeping in fairly close touch with the movements of the police officers and was passing their information along to the wild bunch. Soon we learned enough about them to know what they looked like. The elder one, a girl about 17, had been dubbed Catalani, and the small one had been nicknamed Little Bridges. Wherever they were seen, they were heavily armed with pistols and Winchesters, and it was reported that they were pretty accurate shots. They continued for some weeks to mystify the deputy marshals until Bill Tillman and Steve Burke found a trace of them when they happened to be scouting on another mission. They immediately took up the trail and located the girls at a farmhouse near Pawnee. As the officers drew near, Little Britches ran out through the back door of the farmhouse and mounted her horse. Tillman followed, spurring his horse into a dead run. Cattle Annie had not seen, and Burke dismounted to search the house for her. Tillman's horse was a faster animal than the crowbait little britches was riding, and he soon overtook her. She attempted to fire at him over her shoulder, but apparently she was not accustomed to shooting from a running horse, and her shots, well, they went wild. Here was a new problem for Bill Tillman. He was the most chivalrous fellow who ever lived, and he would not kill a woman under any circumstances. This female was pouring hot lead at him, and he was too much of a gentleman to shoot back. Finally, exasperated, Tillman unsheathed his Winchester, and he shot the girl's horse. The animal tumbled in the dust with a grunt, pinning the girl's leg beneath its carcass. The impetus of her fall threw one of her six shooters a short distance away, into the grass, and as she lay pinned beneath the horse, she could not reach for her other gun. She struggled. She struggled right there, cursing and scratching in an attempt to reach the lost gun, which just lay six or eight inches beyond her grasp. When Tillman reached her side, she was frantically pulling at the grass near the gun and screeching like a wildcat. She threw a handful of dirt into Bill's eyes, causing him a brief moment of pain. 
Tillman picked up the gun, removed its shells, and then lifted the carcass of the horse from the girl's leg. She came up fighting and scratching, but he soon had her disarmed and under control. She had not been injured in the fall. Bill placed her on his horse and mounted behind her on the horse, riding back to see how Burke had fared with the other little character. Burke was easing out up to a window, intending to peer through to see who was inside when the head of the other outlaw girl was thrust out as she looked nervously in the opposite direction of the officers. She had a Winchester in one hand, and just as she saw Burke and would have aimed the gun to shoot him, he caught her about the shoulders and pulled her through the window. When her feet touched the ground, she made a wild effort to get hold of one of her six-shooters. With Burke's strong arms about her, well, she was helpless. When the officers joined each other, Tillman was still rubbing his eyes, and Burke had a long scratch across his cheek. The girls were taken to Perry, Oklahoma, where they were brought to trial before Judge Beer, who, because of their age, sentenced them to the Federal Reformatory at Framington, Massachusetts. The girls gave their names as Annie McDougal, alias Cattle Ann, Annie, and the Jenny Metcalf, alias Little Riches. They were daughters of two poor families living near each other in the Osage Nation. Their people were uneducated, but were mostly respectable. Nix remembered that the father of one of the girls attributed her wild ideas to the environment of some of the hilarious dances that were held in the Indian country and to the influence of outlaws who intended these functions. When the jailer's wife had scrubbed the pair and dressed them in attractive clothes, they appeared to be very innocent country girls, and they got the sympathy of everyone who saw them. Charlie Concord and Marshall Nix made the trip to the reformatory with them. The long journey pleased the girls a great deal, as their lives had been much circumcised by poverty and the crude environment in which they had been reared. Next discovered merchants all over were getting hold of counterfeit silver dollars with several thousand already in circulation. Deputy Marshal George Starmer located the place in a cave in Creek County with complete equipment and a set of dyes. A. Madden and his wife were sentenced to 10 years in prison. The prince of counterfeiters was John Crilly, who at age 75 was faking 10 and $20 gold pieces. He owned a ranch near Tecumseh. Deputy Sam Bartell found an underground lab with tools and equipment and a large sack full of single and double eagles. Judge Scott gave him five years rather than 10 in prison because of his age. Crilly's attorneys petitioned President Cleveland for a pardon. The president said stealing the people's money was next to treason, and he denied the parole. Crilly died in prison. Red Buck needed a new horse after it was killed by a posse after the wild bunch robbed a train at Dover. He stopped at the home of a preacher and got the horse from the stable. An old man came out and yelled, That's my son's... But Red Buck shot and killed him in mid-sentence. Doolin was furious about the cold-blooded killing. He divided the loot up from the robbery at Dover and told Red Buck to leave 
or he would kill him. The Wild Bunch then robbed a Woodward Express Company safe at 10 at night of $6,500 with the agent tied up until morning. Hearing some of the gang would be at the Will Dunn Ranch, deputies Bill Tillman and Heck Thomas led a posse there. They hid and waited and waited and waited. On the evening of the third day, Bitter Creek Newsom and Charlie Pierce rode toward the house. Heck Thomas yelled, Hands up! To Bitter Creek Newsom and Charles Pierce. Both fired, and the posse returned fire, killing them both. Marshal Nix and Deputy Burris and Jones stopped at a store by Perry. A man rode up, and holy moly, it was Dynamite Dick. He came off his horse and made a quick draw, but was shot by U.S. Marshal Nix and his lawmen. Dick died from his wounds. Bill Tillman and Heck Thomas tracked little Bill Radler to near Pahuska. Tillman confronted him, and little Bill fired, but he missed Tillman. Tillman shot him. He recovered and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. An Indian scout found Bill Dalton at his wife's house near Ardmore. The house was surrounded. Dalton walked outside and was told to surrender. He did a quick draw and fired. Deputy lost heart, returned fire, and killed him. Chris Madsen tracked Red Buck to a dugout near Arapahoe, which the posse surrounded. He came out, but drew rather than surrender, and was killed by the volley of fire. Bill Doolin was reported to be at a cabin near Lawton, preparing to leave the country with his wife and baby son. Heck Thomas surrounded the cabin with his posse. When night fell, Doolin came out and his wife and baby got into the wagon as they were going to travel at night to avoid notice. Heck Thomas stepped forward and told Doolin to surrender. Doolin drew, but Thomas was faster, and Doolin was killed, which ended the terror of the reign of the Wild Bunch. Marshall Ed next closed the book on the outlaws, including the Al Jennings gang and Henry Starr, making 60,000 arrests on federal charges. He returned to his life as a businessman, moving to Joplin, Missouri as a wholesale grocer. He moved to St. Louis, where he opened an investment firm that specialized in oil, land, and mining. He became very successful. He paid for Bill Tillman's movie, The Passing of Oklahoma Outlaws, he was the president of Eagle Film Company. Tillman was vice president. Chris Madsen was secretary. Nix died February 4th, 1946 in Riverside, California, and he's buried in Kentucky. Gordon Hines said, Nix was a quiet, substantial man who remained in the background and did his work very effectively. He was the man and he did the job. Thank all of you for being here today and letting me bend your ear a bit. It was quite a story about the grocer who tamed the Wild West. Please share this podcast to keep history alive. I appreciate your listening so much. This is Joe Cummings. 
and I will see you next time on Tall Tales Uncovered.